0: Jesus, we love you. We thank you that we get to be together. Um, God, that we're free to gather together, to talk about you, to, to learn about you, to worship you, uh, just to be in your presence. Uh, thank you for always meeting us right where we are, uh, wherever we come from today. Whether we took a huge risk just to come to church today and we don't know who all these crazy people are, or this feels like family or somewhere in between. God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, uh, help us grow in our relationship with you and our understanding of why you put us here on this planet, what we're supposed to do with our lives, God, in order to be the people that you created us to be and honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in a teaching series uh, this month on love because it's February, and that's what you have to talk about in February. Today, we're going to continue our discussion about What is exactly a Christian definition of love? Uh, Last week, Pastor Stephanie did a great job helping to connect how love uh, relates to our fears and drives out our fears. And the week before that, we talked a little bit about how God uh, is love. And those are both great messages if you want to go back and listen to some of those. But as we start this morning, I want to encourage you to think back on your life. Okay, Think back on your history and try to remember... Uh, from whom you've learned the most about love? How how have you learned about what love is? Uh, what's been your experience of love? And maybe think as far back as you can. You know, to uh, the family that you grew up in, um, the experiences you had as a kid, the friendships you de- you developed as a child. Uh, maybe there's a, a teacher or a friend or a coach or somebody who really invested you invested in you and helped you understand what. to love others. Maybe you've had some really bad relationships that have taught you what love isn't in your life, uh, or some negative experiences that have defined love for you. Um, No matter where you're at in your life, um, in terms of your relationship status, or your age, or your background, we all have these stories that teach us something about love. And part of what we're hoping in this series is, can we look at Scripture and kind of examine what we've learned experientially about love and see how much of it lines up with what God says is true about what love is and how much of it is false or leading us in a different direction. I was thinking back on my own story, and I decided to tell you this pretty embarrassing story about um, how I learned what not to do if you want to express love to someone. So uh, this may come as a huge shock to you, but I was a pretty immature, emotionally immature teenager. Yeah, it's so surprising, right, Craig? I know. Thank you for affirming that. When I look back, though, on those teen years, um, I, I realized I was afraid to engage with people emotionally. And so, like, I mostly just uh, acted in weird ways. So, here's the story. So, I'm dating this gal in high school, and I, I think the relationship should be over. I'm pretty sure she doesn't only think the relationship should be over, she outright dislikes me. But but we're teenagers, so we're still dating, right? And so we're getting ready to go on this to this party. I don't even remember what the party was about. But this was my plan. Instead of just having a mature conversation, saying, like, it doesn't seem like we're connecting and maybe we shouldn't do this anymore, I decided to take my uh, 1980s Honda Civic that was not in good shape and go to the gas station and fill it up right before the date because I knew that when you filled up my Honda Civic, for about a day and a half to two days, it reeked of gas. And if you came anywhere near it, including riding in the car, you also then would reek of gas for some period of time. And so I thought, well, instead of having a mature conversation, what I'm gonna do is fill up my car, go pick up this gal from her house so that by the time we get to the party, we'll both reek of gas. And that'll be embarrassing to her and kind of to me, but mostly to her, right? And so that's what I did. I went and filled up my car. It smelled awful. I picked her up. We went to the party. Within moments of being at the party, other teenage friends of ours were like, What is where were you guys? Like you this, she was like, she turned right around, she's like, just take me home now. So I drove her home, and that was the end of the relationship. Like she broke up with me. So it worked out in the end, is the moral of the story. <laughs> okay, so not a good way to end a relationship, right? Like, you're trying to learn as a young young adult. Now, for all the teenagers, like, Isaac, not a good idea for when you're going out with a gal soon, okay? Um, not a good way to end a relationship. In fact, an incredibly selfish way to end a relationship, right? Fear of confrontation, fear of any kind of mature conversation drives you to come up with a ridiculous scenario. Like, make your girlfriend smell like gas so she'll break up with you. Most of us, though, as we begin with our understanding of love, as we're maturing in our understanding of love, we start out with the primary, primary selfish view of love. We think about love as what we're going to get out of it. We think about love as a way to feel special in relationship with someone else. We fe- we think of love as A feeling even, like we describe this sometimes, is like I'm connected with a new friend or or a romantic relationship. Like I feel butterflies, right? I feel excitement. I feel um, like something really special is happening in my life. And I like that feeling, so I pursue it. But that's almost a wholly selfish view of why you would want to be acting in love towards another person or other people. Love at the beginning of of our development is mostly about us. But as you mature, you begin to recognize that that's not really what love is about, right? Love isn't just about me. It's not just about what I get out of the relationships or how I feel special when I'm with someone. It's way, way more than that. Love is actually about giving myself to other people. Love is about giving myself fully in my relationship with God. Love is about considering the needs of other people before I consider my own needs. Love is about honoring and respecting the image of God in every single person I meet. Love is way more about what I give to others than it is about what I receive from others. And so today what we're going to talk about is how uh, Jesus helps us to define this self-sacrificing orientation of love. That really loving other people first is one of the core Uh, concepts, core understandings of the way that God defines love. So we're going to do that by looking in the book of 1 John. If you have a Bible, you want to flip to it. It's kind of towards the end of your Bible in the New Testament. Uh, John, the author who also wrote the Gospel of John and, and several books in the New Testament, in 1 John is trying to make some very clear statements about what love is in particular Uh, in part because the community is going through these significant challenges. The early church is going through these significant challenges where some people from the church community that were part of it early on have now left. And that has put the, the remaining people in the church at risk for several reasons. One is they're hearing some criticism from the people who left the church and are now saying some things about the folks who are still in the church that's not kind. And that they're in the midst of this culture where they're expected to meet all the requirements of worshiping all the other gods, especially related to the Roman Empire. And they're not always doing that because they believe there's only one true God and they're not meeting all the requirements of worshiping the other gods. And so John is having to write to this new community and say, in spite of people leaving you and criticizing you, in spite of the emperor requiring you to do all these other things that you're now resisting and not doing, uh, there are clear reasons for you to keep doing what you're doing as the church. So first John chapter 3 verse 16, we get some pretty clear instructions about love. Here's what it says. This is how we know what love is. Let me pause. So sometimes the Bible's real confusing. Anybody? You don't often get a statement like that, right? Here you go this is how we know what love is. Very basic, right? Straightforward. Here's the the response to that. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, Let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Just leave that up for me, Adam, will you, for a little bit? So this early community, this is is written probably at the end of the first century, like 85, 90 AD. And this community in some ways is experiencing some fear around being persecuted and maybe being forced to worship in ways that they didn't want to worship. And in the face of those circumstances, John needs to be this clear about why they are called to love each other and love the world around them in the way that they are called. And John defines love here, helps us to understand love in light of what Jesus has done for us. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So let's just pause there for a second, okay? What does love look like on, in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross? It looks like a lot of things, right? I made a list for you. One, Jesus tells us that he willingly gives up his life. No one took it from him. He says, I lay it down and I take it back up again. So God's love for us is God choosing us. God's not being forced to love us. God's not required to love us. God's not loving us out of some duty that he feels. Instead, the cross shows that Jesus willingly looks at us in all of our flaws, in all of our mistakes, in all the things that nobody else knows about your life but you, and says, I love you anyway. I choose to love you and and put you first. The cross teaches us that Jesus allows himself to be killed so that other people, including the people who are persecuting him and killing him, can find, discover God's love. He he allows himself to be killed so that other people will discover the truth of the graciousness and the mercy of the love of God, the God of the Bible, the God of the universe. Jesus sacrifices his life in order to combat evil and to force evil back and to And to take the power of evil away in the world. And the way in which Jesus does that is so important for the definition of love. The way that Jesus defeats evil is through suffering, not violence. This is critical for us in the 21st century. The way that Jesus defines love, defeats evil on the cross, is through suffering, not violence. It would have been way easier for people to understand that the God of the Bible was stronger than all the other gods and came and defeated them physically, overpowered them. And so it was so difficult for them to get their hearts and their minds around the idea that the way that God won was by giving up God's life. It's a whole 180 degree difference than what everyone expected to happen. And that is what John is saying is the definition of God's love. Jesus gave up his life for his closest friends, the disciples at that moment, even when they betrayed him and abandoned him at the time when he said, I need you the most. Now, if one of your close friends abandoned you and betrayed you at the time that you needed them the most, wouldn't it be kind of hard to love them? In spite of just being betrayed by his closest confidants, Jesus still gives up his life for them to, to define and display God's love for them. And the thing that I focused on the most when I was just re-looking at the way that love comes through on the cross was this deep concern that Jesus has for people while he's being crucified. Starting with the two gentlemen that are being crucified with him. Not only is he going through this pain that we can hardly comprehend, if at all, but the people next to him, he's caring for them in the midst of their suffering and inviting them into God's kingdom as he's dying. He he also looks at his mom, Mary, in the midst of his crucifixion, and says to John, one of his disciples, this is now your mom, please take care of her. He knew that his mom didn't have a husband anymore probably, his dad was probably dead, and she was going to be alone in the world that was not kind to women who didn't have men to take care of them, that's the way the culture was. So he, he tells John, from the cross, this is your mom. Take care of her for him. He looks at the, at the guy who's responsible for making sure that he dies on the cross, the Roman soldier, and prays in the moment, Father, please forgive them, this guy, and all the other people that are responsible for this, because they don't know what they're doing. This is the most unbelievable definition of self-sacrificial love that you can possibly imagine when you start to dig in the layers of how love comes through the cross. God's love, John says, is defined best by what Jesus does for us on the cross, what Jesus does for the world on the cross. God's love gives itself up for the sake of the other. God's love is self-sacrificial. So even though we start off with a mostly selfish view of love, the cross teaches us that love is mostly selfless. That we consider other people as more important than ourselves in our effort to display God's love to others. John is trying to reassure this group of people who are living in a culture where they're feeling rejected, betrayed, threatened for their faith, and what does he tell them? He doesn't tell them fortify yourself and learn to protect and defend yourself. He says mature and embody the same kind of love that Jesus demonstrated towards those who are threatening him. Give yourself for the sake of the other. A few years ago, uh, a mentoring, pastoral mentoring group that I'm part of, we made a trip to Birmingham, Alabama. How many people have you have been to Birmingham, Alabama? Yeah, a few of you have. If you've never been there, I recommend that you go. It's an amazing city, and there's a lot to learn in that city. One of the things that I spent some time doing with the group was kind of retracing some of the steps in the civil rights movement, which is incredible to be on the same streets where some of these things took place. So I have a couple pictures for you that I'll share. So this is um, a church, 16th Street Baptist Church, where um, this wall that you're seeing here on the right side of the picture is actually bombed. Uh, and several people died in the midst of the struggle of trying to uh, establish voting rights and other civil rights for, um, for African Americans. To stand in the sanctuary and they have sort of this space where it shows exactly where the damage was done was incredible. Uh, the other person, one of the key people that I learned about, you can't see his head in this picture unfortunately, Reverend uh, Fred Shuttlesworth, who is uh, a key leader in the civil rights movement and a key partner, Martin Luther King Jr. If you go to the next picture, uh, you see him here with uh, Reverend Ralph Abernathy and and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as they're marching in 1963. But what was amazing about uh, Pastor Shuttlesworth was that he was laying the groundwork for the, the ultimate victories that came in Birmingham in the 1960s for at least a decade during the 1950s. Uh, His house was bombed on Christmas day in 1956 while he was sleeping in the house and his children were present. Uh, He helped organize protests where youth were involved and children were involved. The famous photos of children being blasted by fire hydrants and such that many of you, I'm sure, have seen. Uh, were organized by Reverend Shuttlesworth and he was part of that and suffered in the midst of that. He tried to integrate Phillips High School uh, in 1957 with his own daughters who weren't allowed to go to school with white kids. And he was beaten so badly that he was in the hospital and needed to recover. Uh, He was arrested, I don't know how many times, 30 or 40 times. I found this little two-minute video on a website called Biography that I really wanted to show you because it captures it even better than I can describe it to you. So let's take a minute and watch that. It was amazing to be walking down those streets and learning some more about some of these stories and just hearing very tangible examples of what I think John is describing as self-sacrificial love. Someone who is suffering, giving of themselves, for what they believe to be true about the way that God created everybody, that these inequalities are not part of God's design. They're things that we made as human beings. Uh, And to have Reverend Shuttlesworth directly living out his faith. He's very clear about the fact that the things that he did were the result of his faith in Jesus Christ. That, That embodying love and being able to suffer wrongs from people and turn around and stand up in a church and say, we're not going to respond with violence to violence because that's not the way of Jesus Christ. I couldn't think of a more tangible example of what is it like to really embody the kind of love that John is describing here. In the face of this terrible injustice, Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth imitated the love of God in a way that eventually won over the hearts and minds of the United States and allowed for Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., to give voice to the work that had already been done in a way that resulted in amazing steps forward in 1960s, and that work still has a long ways to go. In in this passage we're looking at today, 1 John 3, uh, it describes God's love here very simply in terms of what Jesus has done for us, but then it calls us out, right? The next verse. You want to go back to the scripture for me, Adam? It says, because of what Jesus has done for us, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, then how can the love of God be in that person? Man, doesn't that sound challenging? It sounds challenging to me. If any of you has material possessions, sees someone in need, doesn't do anything about it, how can the love of God be in them? I think this is one of those passages that, that ought to continually challenge us. Even though we know that God's, we, nothing can separate us from God's love. If we find that in our lives, we're continually struggling to give of ourselves and give of the resources that we have to other people, whether that's a listening ear, whether that's a babysitting night, whether it's um, maybe some funds for something that someone else needs, then we have to continue to reconnect with the definition of love that John is giving us here. How much does God want us to give to other people? Sometimes we ask, right? How much am I supposed to give to whatever God's doing through the church or other things in the world, right? It means, this passage means that we're never done loving other people the same way that God is never done loving us. That every single day, is an opportunity for us to say, how can we give of ourselves self-sacrificially in order to help other people discover how much God loves them? In verse 18 here, we we have um, a further challenge. It says, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. God's love invites us not only to talk about God's love, it's not enough to sermonize about love. God's love, but to act in love towards others. Words are important, but not enough. The false divide that we talk about always at Mill City Church between what's called sometimes the spiritual gospel, that you need God's grace and forgiveness to to be in heaven, and what sometimes is called the social gospel, that things like racial inequalities should be battled by Christian people, they're not meant to be separate. It's not enough to talk about how much God loves me and forgives me. I have to also act on that love in ways that are self-sacrificial that cost me something. Reverend Shuttlesworth is an example of how faith inspires concrete action. It was because of his faith that he stood up for for the injustice that he was seeing and experiencing. Whether you're a conservative or a liberal, whether you're a moderate or a libertarian, whether you're an independent Uh, As long as you are a Christian person, which ought to be your first identity, then you have to be concerned about living in ways that demonstrate God's love to other people. We can argue about the best ways to do that. We can't argue about whether or not we're going to demonstrate God's love to others. So I'm, I'm still convinced that this kind of demonstration of love that's described in 1 John is what people are actually looking for on their spiritual journey. The people that you know that uh, maybe aren't Christians or have had a bad experience with the church or have a bad perspective of certain kinds of Christians, I think they want to see faith that makes a difference in the world, don't you? I think when we read the stats about younger generations, feeling less inclined towards church or less inclined towards God, it's because some of us have learned to talk a great game about God, but we're not really doing much. One of the great things and strengths of Mill City Church is that from the moment we began as a church, we've said, let's try to make sure that our life together as church isn't just about making sure that we're having spiritual disciplines and connecting with God, as important as that is. Let's make sure that if we were gone, From our neighborhood and the communities that we're part of, that someone would notice right away. That someone would go, Man, Mill City's not here anymore, and therefore, this and this and that is not happening in the same way as it used to. And let me tell you, that's true of this church. That's true of this church. If this church was gone next week, people would notice. People would notice in the school, people would notice in the neighborhood, people would notice in your workplace. Because we are trying to live it out. Can we do it better? Absolutely. Can we be regularly inspired by the amazing definition of love that Jesus gives us and ask, is there something else that we can do to display the love of God in other people's lives so that when they ask questions about whether or not the person of Jesus really reveals who God is, they can point to our actions and say, man, it's hard to argue with the kind of love that these people display. The best evangelistic tool is loving actions towards people that God clearly cares about in Jesus' name. And that's why our mission statement is to love our community in the name of Jesus. Let me invite the band to come back up. My, uh, my friend out in Wisconsin, a pastor friend of mine, they just had an event at their church um, that I know is in lots of churches and lots of places. They call it a royal affair and they put on this prom-like event for people who have special needs. Uh, Adults, mostly adults who have special needs. And they just do it up. They have this amazing evening event with dinner and dancing and to to highlight and celebrate the gifts and abilities of people who are sometimes uh, overlooked. But this is the interesting part of the story as he was telling me about the event last week. He said, I've been intentionally trying to build relationships with people at my CrossFit gym. And most of the folks at CrossFit don't want to have anything to do with church. They're super skeptical of church. In fact, CrossFit is a kind of church for them. It's a community for them. But when they found out that our church was engaged in this sort of event to show God's love and honor towards people who are sometimes overlooked, they couldn't wait to sign up. And so we had like 300 volunteers, some of whom were from the regular, people who are regularly involved in the church but a good chunk of whom were from this gym where people who are skeptical of showing up at a worship service and listening to someone talk to them about God are absolutely ready to be part of something that God clearly cares about and joining in that work. And now we have a whole different sort of conversation he was telling me about what does it really mean to follow Jesus. It isn't only about coming to worship services, it's also about doing things like that. Isn't that interesting to you? And he said, wow, the conversations just open up. I'm convinced that people are attracted to Jesus and Christian faith when they see the people of God living out God's love for the world in tangible and distinctly Christian way, which we have the opportunity to do. Jesus calls us through his actions on the cross and through the power of the Holy Spirit to love other people first. That's supposed to be our reputation. Let's keep building it together. Can we? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you. God, we thank you for your unconditional love to us. That even though no one in this room can claim to deserve the kind of love that you display on this cross, you give it to us anyway. And Jesus, our lives are changed because we we hear that from you. We feel that love from you. We experience it from you. We know that we matter because you created us and you died for us and you offer us relationship with you, not because of anything that we have done, but because of who you are. But God, we also hear your call to say we can't just sit here and enjoy that favored relationship with you, that grace and mercy. We have to step out into the world that you're deeply concerned about. And be agents of your love in the workplaces and neighborhoods and families that we're part of. So that more people, God, will come to see you and to know you and to realize that there's nobody like you. God, continue to build the reputation of your big C church. Help us not to only be known for things that we have done wrong, but also things that we do right. Where we represent you well. Build the reputation of Mill City Church, God, so that more people will know you, not so that we can be a great church. Help every one of us, God, to think of one thing we can do this week. Bring it to mind. Help us to pay attention. One small act of generosity towards someone else in our lives that could be an expression of your love to the people we see every single day. And may your kingdom come in that way this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.